I got it here. All right. Our scripture today, scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, open to it there if you would. But in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1, we have a bug with our computer. I will put the scripture reading in, and it will not update sometimes. Jacob, can you put in 19, 1 through 12, I think? What does it say on here? Here's what we'll do. It says it right on the title slide. Very odd. I mean, I could preach last week's sermon again. It would be all right, I guess. All right. Matthew 19, beginning verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then he said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me and for me. Father, we ask again that you would help us as we approach your text, your word. A text that uh, is certainly controversial in today's culture, but we know that it is true because it is your words. Help us to live by them and to realize that when scripture says something that we disagree with, that we move not move the scripture to fit what we think. And so we ask that you enable us to see this through your grace and through your mercy and through your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. He hated it. In fact, he loathed it. It had haunted him for many years. And so this was the first time of what would be many where David tried to amputate his own leg. Now, this was not going to be the first time he tried to amputate his own leg, nor is this the first time you've heard me tell you about David, because if you remember, I first told you about David and his amputated story a little over a year and a half ago. But as we saw then, David had a problem, if you remember, and that problem was his leg, which he desperately wanted to be free from. And so he finally worked up the courage to fashion a tourniquet out of an old sock and a bailing wire with the goal of finally being free from this hideous leg. But then after locking himself in his parents' bedroom at his his parents' house, he uh, lied there with his leg bound and propped, and the pain and fear eventually became unbearable, leading David to give up. Still, this failure did not lessen David's resolve, and so he tried yet again to be free from his leg. It did not work, though, and so he still would sit there frustrated, angry that this leg was still attached, spending nearly every waking minute of his life being obsessed with how great it would be to finally be free from his leg. When he would stand, he would put all of his weight on the good leg and not his bad leg, and at home, he'd hop around on one foot, and when sitting, he would often angrily push the bad leg to the side, out of sight, pretending that it wasn't there. And he had even began to blame his leg for his single status, which, as I'm sure you can tell, that was not the problem. And so David tried once again to amputate his leg, but failed again. Still, though, he was determined. And knowing that he couldn't do it himself, he thought it would be best to reach out and find an expert, a surgeon, who would help him remove this leg that he desperately wanted to be untouched from himself. 
And so using underground online channels, David made contact with a person who had undergone their own amputation surgery for the same exact reason. And he was now helping others find surgeons who were loving and caring enough to help people remove unwanted limbs. David met with this surgeon who was very sympathetic to his situation and diagnosed him with a condition called body dysmorphic disorder. However, though legally, that would not be enough of a reason to amputate the leg. And so the surgeon had David admitted to the hospital for a different reason entirely. And that reason was for vascular surgery. But then under this false pretense, the surgeon and his team began to work on David in surgery, but they got in there and found out, oh, shocking enough, the leg was much too compromised and it had to be removed. And so David then under this surgery had his leg forever removed and he was finally free from it. You know, as bizarre as David's condition of body dysmorphic disorder is, Do you realize that our culture is suffering from this same condition, but in a different way? What am I talking about? I'm talking about divorce. As Jesus tells us in our passage this morning, divorce is an amputation. That's what it is. And because of spiritual body dysmorphia, there are many people out there who are desperately obsessed with having this amputation take place so that they can be free from its constraints and go on to live their lives how they see fit. Like David, they began to see their spouse as being separate from themselves, no longer one flesh, as a foreign entity that was causing misery and pain and unhappiness. And if they could only be free, they would be happy, or so they think. But as Jesus tells us, now for the second time in Matthew's gospel, divorce is anything but a happy endeavor. For divorce is nothing less than radical amputation that violently rips apart the two who have become one through the union of marriage. And yet we live in a culture that's plagued by this spiritual body dysmorphic disorder. When I say that our society is plagued by this problem, that's not an exaggeration. For recent statistics show that roughly one out of every two marriage in our culture ends in divorce, whereas in the 1920s, it was only one out of every seven marriages that ended in divorce. So the problem has gotten radically worse. But here's the thing about this radical approach to marital problems. Most of the time, it's like amputating your finger for a splinter. And the research actually shows this to be true because two-thirds of people who are unhappy in their marriage will become happy within five years if they will stick with it and tough it out. The research shows this. It's not even questioned. And yet nearly half do not tough it out and instead choose to go the route of radical amputation. Okay, why do I call it radical amputation? Because that's what divorce is. It's radical amputation. It's not like severing a contract. It's more like severing a major body part from you, which is why in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and they shall become one flesh. And so just as the removal of a limb is a radical endeavor, so too is the separation that occurs when the one fleshness of marriage is ripped asunder. This is obviously a very painful and dramatic ordeal, and this is why we see God in Malachi saying he hates divorce, because it's painful. It's a severe separation, a radical amputation. And this is also why Jesus warns against divorce, as we saw way back in Matthew chapter 5, and now yet again in Matthew chapter 19. Now, maybe you're getting major deja vu here, and part of that makes sense because we use the same illustration in Matthew chapter 5 because it's the same text. It's the same outline, more or less. Matthew chapter 5's version on divorce is really just a condensed version of what we see with Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19, which is our passage this morning. And so when it comes to preparing for this text, I figured, you know, if Jesus can talk on it twice, we can use the same illustration twice. Why not? It makes the same. He made the point once. He made it again. We can do the same thing, too. Plus, the other thing I was thinking about was a lot of you weren't here back then, so you didn't even, and probably a lot of you don't even remember it anyway. So, all right, now with that said, here's the question Why is Jesus repeating this again here for us? Well, there's lots of reasons, I think, for that, but surely one of them is because if you're at all like me, you need the truth repeated more than one time. You probably need it over and over and over and over again. I know I do. 
And still, though, I do consider this church to be a pretty good church, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that the rest of you all also have not perfected your marriage either. Am I correct in that guess? All right, so it makes sense that we would need this teaching yet again so quickly. The reality is all of our marriage could use help in at least some way. And for those who aren't married, this text still applies greatly to you, especially if you're looking for a spouse or just wanting to understand God's view of marriage and how that relates to our relationship with him. And so this morning, we're going to look at Jesus's teaching on marriage in Matthew chapter 19, not because we want to blast all the people who've been divorced and really go after them. No, that's not what we're after here. We are going into this text, looking at divorce and marriage again, because that's the next several verses in our passage through Matthew. It's really that simple. I don't sit in my office and look through and figure out, what can I get? What's the worst problem here I can preach on Sunday? No, we just go verse by verse through things, and this is the next one in the book of Matthew. All right, so with that said, we know that this is from the Lord. It's good for us. It's given to us to help us, not to harm us, and so let's embrace it. Now, with that said, let's jump into our text. And in our text, it's going to show us how to have a good marriage. And it comes from knowing three things. To have a good marriage, we must know where, we must know what, and we must know how. Let's look at the first one. We must know where it comes from. So where did marriage come from? Is it something we made up? Is it a human institution? Is it something we created? And so we can kind of determine, you know, what works best. We can tweak things. Is that how it works? No. Marriage, according to the Bible, according to the book of Genesis, is an institution that is created by God. It's something that he made, which means that he wrote the instruction manual for it. And if we ignore that instruction manual, how do you think that's going to go? Not so good. We're going to cause a lot of harm, not just to ourselves, but also to others if we try to ignore God's instruction plans for how to have a good marriage. I just learned this, so I can't act like I already knew, but what's a chop saw used for? Tom's been helping me get my deck redone, and so I know some of the tools now. What's a chop saw used for? Cutting wood, right? Did I have it right, guys? Ladies who know? I didn't, all right, yeah. All right, that's what I think it's for. All right, but here's the question I have for you. What if I try to use that chop saw to cut my nails down a little bit? How's that going to go? Uh, it's going to actually work really, really good. I'm just never going to have to trim my nails again because that's not what a chop saw is made for. It's not. It's for chopping wood, not fingernails. And if I try to use it for a purpose other than what it was made for, I'm going to have a whole lot of pain. And the same thing is absolutely true of marriage. We are going to hurt ourselves and others if we try to use marriage for a purpose other than what God made it for. And so what is marriage for? Well, it's like everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which includes marriage, do all to the glory of God. Marriage is for bringing glory to God. Okay, that's a very general answer, specifically how. It's for bringing, to glory, it's for bringing glory to God as one man and one woman become one flesh. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 2. Okay, what does that mean to become one flesh? What is that, what is that talking about? Now, this certainly includes physical intimacy, no questions about it, but it's actually a whole lot more than that. For it includes intimacy in all aspects of our lives. It includes physical intimacy, intellectual intimacy, and emotional intimacy, which simply means sharing in every aspect of your being with that other person, so much to the point that you're really kind of one person. You're not two people who live together. You're not two people who share hobbies. You're two people who share every aspect of your being with the other. And if we don't treat marriage in this way, if we don't approach it that way, uh, if we ignore, or maybe we just pick one of those out of all the rest, it's going to cause problems, just like using the chop saw to try to cut off fingernails. That's not what it's made for. Marriage was made so that the two coming together, one man, one woman, become one flesh in a total and complete intimate matter at every level of their being. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, sorry, I'm just not much of a talker. Like, maybe, you know, I don't like talking about emotions, sharing my feelings. I, you know, the way I was raised, I just shut that down and I bury it. Like, it never comes to the surface. Well, all right. Well, let me ask you if that's your approach and you say you don't want to share in that emotional intimacy with your spouse, how would you feel if your spouse had the same approach towards physical intimacy or intellectual int- intimacy? Would you be okay with that? I'm guessing probably not. 
Uh, And the point here is simple. It's a package deal. God meant for us to share in each other's in each other's lives in the most deepest and fullest of ways, which includes physical, intellectual, and emotionally. You can't cherry-pick these, or you're going to cause serious problems. Do you realize that there's never been a culture that didn't have marriage? Every single culture has marriage, and that's because the ties of marriage run deep. It goes all the way back to the creation. It's something that God made, not us. Otherwise, if it was something that we invented, you'd see it, you know, kind of just in different cultures, but in a lot of cultures, you wouldn't. But it's in every culture. And because it comes from God, this means that he invented it on the day he invented us, and so we can't tweak it into something different than what he created it for. He's the creator. He knows what it's for. And if we try to use it for something else, for our own purposes, it's going to have disastrous results. And for evidence of that claim, I would point you to Western civilization, which is basically a dumpster fire when it comes to marriage right now. It's a total mess. I mean, you look at Hollywood, right? Like, these people have everything. They're, they're the most beautiful people on the planet, some of the most richest people on the planet, and yet they're, some of them are on, like, their eighth marriage. It's just they can't make it work. It's a total mess. We thought we'd be happy as a culture, we thought we'd be happy if we could turn sexuality and marriage into what we wanted it to be instead of what God made it to be. And it hasn't worked out, not even a little bit. And yet, we embrace insanity and keep trying to do the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results, expecting that maybe this time I'll be happy. And yet, we end up miserable. We end up with chopped off fingers. The truth is, if you want a good and healthy marriage, you have to do it God's way, not your way. The Burger King motto does not work when it comes to marriage. You have to do it God's way. And if you don't, it will cause problems. And so in Jesus' day, just like our day, the religious leaders had taught people to do marriage their own way instead of God's way. And in fact, it was even worse because they said, no, this is actually God's way, and it wasn't. It was their way. How so? Well, they taught that the law of Moses commanded and it even encouraged a man to divorce his wife for any reason that he saw fit. But the truth was, as Jesus points out, it was not saying that whatsoever. The law of Moses, what it did was it gave instructions for what to do when the tragedy of divorce occurred. It wasn't saying it was a good thing that should be pursued on a whim. No, it simply provided the seatbelt and the airbags for marriages that ended up going over the cliff. It wasn't suggesting you should intentionally drive over the cliff pass right through the rails. No, it was saying, here's some safety mechanisms we're going to put in for marriages that have catastrophically gone over the rails. And sometimes that does happen. And yet the religious leaders were saying, nah, let's go right over the rails at any point, at any time. Why not? It's extremely dangerous. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they taught this way despite what the law actually said. And they went so far as to say that divorce could happen for nearly anything at all. It wasn't just for over-the-cliff situations, but for anything and everything. I'm not joking when I say this. One of the examples was, was if your wife burnt the food, you could divorce her. Why not? If the neighbor girl was more attractive because you've been married for 30 years now, you can issue your wife a certificate of divorce and just go after her. It was not a big deal in that culture, which is shocking because they were a heavily religious culture in some senses, and yet they had twisted God's law into justifying their selfish and sinful desires, which sounds pretty similar to our culture, doesn't it? It absolutely does. The point of the Old Testament laws on divorce was not to power divorce, but to limit divorce's destructiveness. See, back then, it wasn't like today. It wasn't like today where women had rights and power like men do. Back then, women were wrongly seen as basically being second-class citizens. And when they were divorced by their husbands, they didn't walk away with 50% of the goods. They walked away with nothing, not a thing, zilch. And so their very livelihood was in jeopardy. I mean, think this was back in the day before technology and where, like today, like technology is made so men and women can basically do a lot of the same jobs. But back then, it didn't really work that way. There was a lot of manual labor involved that would put their lives in jeopardy because they were then separated and cut off from the family. And so Moses came along, he introduced these laws that regulated and controlled a bad situation to keep it from becoming chaotic. Uh, He put these in place because what would happen was 
unjust towards women and would lead to their endless suffering. And so in Deuteronomy 24, it instructs that people are to issue a letter of divorce to a woman. Why? So that when she went out and found another husband, then that man couldn't come along and accuse her of adultery. Because what happened back then if you got accused and found guilty of adultery? You were dead. They would stone you to death. And so God implemented this letter of divorce, not because he wanted people to divorce, but as Jesus says in verse 8, because of the hardness of their hearts. But the Pharisees missed this, and they went ahead and taught the total opposite, actually, of what God intended here. They said that divorce is fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the reason for divorce. The thing you got to worry about is issuing that letter. That's what God cares about. So long as you issue the letter, you can divorce for any reason. doesn't matter. God will be perfectly happy. He'll approve and rubber stamp your divorce. But God doesn't approve and rubber stamp divorce for any reason, does he? No, he doesn't. As Jesus points out, if you divorce someone for a reason other than adultery, and that's this text, he's focusing on that. There's other passages we could look at that we don't have time for. But in this passage, he's pointing out one of the reasons you can divorce for, which is adultery. And he's saying, if you divorce outside of this, you're not okay in God's eyes. You're an adulterer, he actually says. Which actually would have been pretty shocking for the religious leaders to hear that they were guilty of adultery and worthy of being stoned to death. I mean, these guys were the religious, religious of the religious. They were the top-notch people who thought they were, you know, above the fray. So in Matthew 19, Jesus wasn't correcting or undoing the law of Moses. What was he doing? He was fulfilling it, which is what Jesus always does with the Old Testament. He always fulfills it. He doesn't abolish the law. We saw that back in Matthew chapter 5. He says, I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it, to fill it full. And so he was correcting the religious leader's wrong interpretation and honoring the law by teaching the true heart, meaning, and purpose that God had behind it. And the meaning, as we've discussed, comes from where? God, not us. Which means that its meaning and purpose isn't up to us, which leads us to our second point. To have a good marriage, we must know where it comes from, but secondly, what it's for. We said before that the essence of marriage is oneness, and to have oneness requires intimacy, not just physical intimacy, but total intimacy, which includes all aspects of our lives that we share with the other person, intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy. And according to the Bible, this level of intimacy is to be experienced only within covenantal marriage, not within contractual relationships. And those are very different things. See, in our culture, love or romantic relationships are not seen as covenant. They are seen as contract, which means that they are often viewed a whole lot more like renting instead of buying. See, when you're renting, and everybody here knows this, uh, you don't really take care of the place quite like you do when it's your own, do you? Of course not. It's somebody else's problem. You're there for just a temporary amount of time, and so you're not going to worry about fixing some long-term problems with the place. You know, you're going to clean a little bit and stuff, but you're not really going to you know, get in there and redo the flooring or pull out the tile. You're not going to mess with that kind of stuff. It's somebody else's problem. And while this is how our culture views relationships, this is not at all how the Bible views them. The Bible views physical relationships as being something that should only occur within the covenant of marriage which means that you should only, uh, when it comes to people coming together, you should not have a renter's mentality. You need to have a buyer's mentality. You need to have this covenantal marriage only works with people who have, invested, who have a vested interest in the other person's good, not just the other person's goods. And that is completely upside down compared to how it works in our culture right now. Our culture doesn't see it this way. Our culture says, hey, you know what? You can have all the physical intimacy you want with whoever you want, whenever you want, no strings attached. You don't have to expose yourself intellectually or emotionally or even covenantally agreeing to be and stay with this person no matter what changes. You can have all the physical intimacy you want when and where you want on your own terms, no strings attached. Do you realize how dangerous this is? It's extremely dangerous. It's playing with fire and someone's going to get burnt. Why is that approach to physical intimacy so dangerous? Well, there's several reasons, and we'll look at a few here, but one of them is for sure is because it's idolatrous. It's something that God hates. God hates idols. He hates idolatry. He hates idol worship. And this is certainly idolatry because it leads you to treat other people as goods and commodities instead of persons who have dignity, worth, and value because they're made in the image of God. It is to take that person 
and try to get them to revolve around you and serve your personal happiness. And if that's how you view other people, then not only are you going to make them miserable, but you're going to make yourself miserable. See, if you're trying to look to somebody else to make you happy, it's not going to work because nobody can live up to that. There's only one, actually, who can, and it's Christ. Because the thing is, is at the center of our heart lies a God-shaped hole, and Christ, God, is the only one who can fill it. And yet our culture is running around frantically trying to get other people to serve their personal happiness, to fill that hole, and it doesn't work. It ends in misery. It ends in destruction. The second reason a contractual approach to physical intimacy is so dangerous is because it doesn't lead to real intimacy. Think about it. With a contractual relationship, it's based upon my needs being met. And as long as they're being met, the contract will continue on. But the second they are not met and this person stops meeting the needs, well, then we can sever that contract. We can rip it up and just move on. And if you think about this, what this means is either side better not show their true colors. You better not show who you really are because what happens if they not like what they see and they say, you know what? Rip this contract up. I'm out of here. So think about this. Tell me, does that approach, is it possible for that to lead to true intimacy? No, not at all. It leads to deception and manipulation is what it leads to. And that's not just the relationship uh, not just, it's, it's not a relationship that's built upon love at all. Not, at all. not even a little bit. It's built upon lust. It's built upon selfishness. It's built upon idolatry, as we talked about. The truth is, it is only within a covenantal relationship that true love can flourish because that's the only place where you can truly be yourself. You can be the real you. You can let your hair down. You can wake up and not run into the bathroom quickly and throw makeup back on again, right? You can show who you really are Uh, to the core of your being, warts and all. And so it is only within this kind of relationship that you can be upfront with each other about your problems, that you can work on them together as a team. And you can only do it in the confines of covenantal marriage is because you know that other person isn't going to go anywhere. You know that they're there for the long haul. They don't have a renter's approach. They have a buyer's approach. And they signed up for this, you know, because they vowed before God and family and friends that they would do this in sickness and in health. And that sickness doesn't just mean physical sickness. It also means spiritual and behavioral sickness too. And so it is only within the covenantal relationship that the two people can finally feel comfortable enough to show each other their flaws, to show each other their true character, that deck that needs to be replaced, those floorboards that creak, the cold and drafty spots in the house, and they can do so because they know they know that they settled in with a buyer and not just a renter. A renter says, fix all the problems now or I'm out. But a buyer says, yep, that does need a lot of work. We'll work on it together. Might take some time, but we'll get it done. See the difference there? Do you realize that the purpose of marriage isn't about feelings of love and emotional satisfaction? It's not. That's not what marriage is for. It's wonderful when you have feelings of love and the emotional satisfaction, but that's not what it's for. The purpose of marriage is for what? Oneness. It's It's for oneness. It's the union of two people coming together, becoming one flesh, safely within a covenant system, not a contractual one. Matthew 19.5 says this, And therefore a man shall leave his father and and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This cleaving is talking about the union or the covenant of marriage. And it goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. And when we make our covenantal vows at our wedding... Notice what is being said and what isn't being said. We aren't saying, I promise to love you as long as I feel like it. As long as these feelings of love continue, I will continue in this relationship with you. No, what we are covenanting to say is, I promise to love you even when I don't feel like it, even when you let me down. What it really is at a wedding, it's a promise for future love, not current love which is why we make vows saying until death do us part, not until unhappiness do we part. See, a wedding isn't about pledging current love. That's pretty much entirely worthless. 
and we have an entire Western civilization that proves that to us. A wedding is about pledging your undying future love to that person, which will go on even in the dark times when the feelings of love have vanished. And so there we stand before God, friends, and family, vowing to continue giving love, faithfulness, and affection regardless of future conditions. What it is, it's a vow of future love, not present love. See, when it comes to marriage, everybody has present love, right? Unless you got forced into an arranged marriage or something, like everybody in, in Western civilization, when we get married, it's because we have present love, right? Pretty fair to say. Uh, and the thing about present love is that's largely driven by instincts at that point. It just comes natural to us. But the problem then occurs when our other instincts kick in, which are sinful instincts, and leads us to no longer feeling the love that we once did. And so at those times, we're going to need to do or have something greater than just an agreement that's based upon feelings. We need something more than a contract. What we need is a covenant which allows us to patiently love the person that we've married despite their flaws, despite the way that they're making us feel, which doesn't feel good at times, does it? Makes us feel awful at times. But in our culture, we're obsessed with finding Mr. Right. But here's the thing. There is no Mr. Right. There is no Miss Right. It doesn't work that way. Yes, there are some people you really shouldn't marry. Like, write them off, don't marry them. But The truth is, there's no Mr. and Mrs. Right because every single person is deeply incompatible because of their sin. Every single person is. My sin makes my marriage with Becky completely incompatible and vice versa. And the same thing goes for the rest of you all. Have you ever heard someone say, I want to marry somebody who loves me for me, somebody who doesn't want me to change? Anybody ever heard this before? How about all the time? What an awful, awful idea. Like, in the history of bad ideas, I mean, this one's up there. Like, here's the thing. I love y'all, but you're flawed, okay? Just like me, we are all deeply flawed, as we just talked about, and those flaws are called sin, okay? They're not just mistakes. They're not just errors. They're not just boo-boos. They're sin, okay? And because we are all deeply flawed, why on earth would we want to stay deeply flawed to that level for the rest of our days? doesn't make any sense, right? Like, we know we have problems. We know we need to change. And so when we get married, why would we think, nah, you should be good with it? It doesn't work that way. Make no mistake, this is a big part of why marriages go bad, because they don't understand that what marriage is, it's a covenant of two people coming together, becoming one flesh, being committed to lovingly and graciously help one another clean up those problems. Replace the the deck boards that need to go that are rotten. To fix the tile, all that kind of stuff, right? You get the idea here? A big part of marriage is certainly that. It's seeing each other as our other half, as an extension of ourselves. And then approaching each other's flaws in a loving and gracious way, working on them as a team, not as opponents. Not as a renter who says to the landlord, you're a slumlord, get this figured out now or I'm out. It's a totally different approach. But if you don't think of marriage in this way, if you don't think of love in this way, which is the Bible's way, right, then not only will you never experience true, deep, loving intimacy, but you'll never experience the remarkable power of marriage to change you in ways that you never thought possible. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to hide. You're going to cover up intellectually, emotionally, and oftentimes even physically from your spouse. And this is absolutely going to destroy the intimacy that was meant to happen within the covenant of marriage. Do you realize that in Genesis 3, right, like before the fall, uh, before they sinned, um, there was shared nakedness with Adam and Eve, right? And so that shared nakedness that, that is going on there, when it comes to the physical intimacy, here's what I'm trying to say is, it's but a picture of the entire nakedness that is supposed to incur intellectually and emotionally with your spouse, Does that make sense? It's a picture of that. And what a brilliant picture that is. What am I talking about? I'm talking about exposing your thoughts to your spouse, your worries to your spouse, your fears, your frustrations, your joys, your dreams. You don't cover them up. You uncover them with your spouse and you share them with them. Total intimacy, not just physical intimacy. And yet, sadly, 
There's a lot of marriages out there, even Christian marriages, that don't experience even a shred of this kind of total intimacy in their relationship with their spouse. Instead, they run around living almost separate lives from each other, focusing on their career, maybe their kids or family or their hobbies, and they never experience true marital intimacy. And there's a million reasons for why this ends up being the case, but one of them is surely a way of protecting themselves of not exposing their flaws and being rejected or hurt by the other person's flaws. They're like, I've been there, done that. I, I'm not turning the cheek anymore. They, I, I, you know, I'm not talking about physical assaulting here. That's a whole different thing. But you know, you know what I mean? I'm talking about like when our spouse sins against us and we sin against them, it can often get to the point where we're like, you know what? Forget this. We'll just be roommates, basically. And that happens so very often. So very often where we get tired of exposing, being exposed to each other's flaws and being rejected and hurt. But here's the thing. If you take this approach, it's going to prevent you from experiencing the deep and joyful and, yes, sometimes painful intimacy that God designed marriage to be. C.S. Lewis has a good quote on this. Here's what he says. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact... You must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The point here is is if you want to experience deep relational intimacy that God designed marriage to be, you're going to have to expose yourself to the other person within the confines of a loving covenant, not a contract. Outside of our relationship with Christ, do you realize that marriage is one of the most powerful, it's probably the most powerful relationship that we have, even more powerful than children with their parents? It's remarkable. See, marriage is a power that can be harnessed for great good or great harm. Think about it. If everybody here thinks I'm an ugly Quasimodo, but my wife thinks I'm Prince Charming, and she's head over heel in love with me, whose opinion wins out there? Hers does. I don't care what the rest of you all think. Hers wins out, which is a really good reason to make the marriage relationship the absolute priority over all other relationships. And parents, that includes your young kids. The kids need to know that, that dad cares about mom more than the kids and vice versa. That needs to be shown to them over and over and over. I like how one Christian counselor, he said, when I get home from work, the first thing I do is I go greet my wife, I give her a hug, and I give her a kiss, and I let the kids know out of the way till I see mom. And now they're just, when he gets home, he's like, it finally got to the point where I got home, and they're just like, mom's in the kitchen. You know, like they didn't come up and greet him and stuff because they knew they didn't get to see dad until dad went and greeted his priority, which was his wife. And so that makes sense why he would do so because the marriage relationship is something that when we make a priority, it has so much potential for great good in our lives. And when we don't, it can destroy our lives. It can lead to misery beyond misery. It can lead to experiencing a small taste of hell on earth. When it comes to marriage, it has great power for good and great power for evil, which is, I think is one of the reasons why the Bible takes divorce so seriously. And it's because divorce is a destructive tsunami upon our lives that wreaks havoc long after the settlement has been finalized. It leaves scars and wounds that, yes, they can heal, but like an amputation, they never fully heal. In fact, a lot of people will tell you that the death of a spouse is way easier than a divorce. See, a divorce rips family, families apart. And that pain continues on. It leaves a sense of failure, of guilt, of nights without sleep that are full of tears and sadness. It affects our jobs, our work performance. And if all this wasn't bad enough, it leaves parents with the agonizing pain over their children, wondering if their divorce scars will bleed over into the future marriages of their children. There's custody battles, financial battles, visitation rights that must be worked out and holidays that give the painful reminder of the amputation that has occurred. And yet our culture, like the culture of Jesus's, amputates over every little tiny reason. 
As we said earlier, divorce, especially in our culture, is often like amputating your leg over a splinter. And you know, if you think about this, might it be a whole lot less painful to pull that splinter out instead of removing the leg entirely? This is one of the reasons why the Bible restricts divorce as it does, and one of those restrictions that Jesus gives here is for adultery. Now, there is certainly a much larger conversation that we don't have time to have here on what those restrictions are, when it is okay, when it's not okay. Uh, But the point here is simple that Jesus is making to us, which is don't divorce for any old reason. Don't take the Pharisees' approach. Don't jump, dive headfirst into divorce when there's problems in your marriage. Instead, work to fix them. If David's parents knew that he was going to amputate his leg, do you think they might have tried to stop him? Absolutely they would have. If they loved him at all, of course they would have. And so too, with this in mind, do you see why, as a church, when we see marriages falling apart, we go after them. We try to save them. And we look saw in Matthew 18 what that process looks like uh, when it comes to church discipline and going after the wandering sheep and trying to bring them back. It's not because we're cruel. It's not because we're unloving. It's not because we're uncaring or that we are indifferent to their suffering and pain, which is certainly very real within a struggling marriage. It's because we know that there are much less drastic measures to heal that hurt. Amputation's not the route you go. You don't just immediately, oh, I got a problem, chop it off. No. The last time I preached on marriage and divorce, I had only preached the first four chapters of Matthew because it's in Matthew chapter 5 where we read of Jesus' teaching on divorce. And now after preaching through the first 18 chapters, I've come to realize something I didn't realize last time. And what I've realized is that there's another very important reason why we fight against divorce. In Matthew 18, we saw Jesus' teaching on wandering sheep, church discipline, and how it's vitally important to forgive We saw that last week, right? Last week, we saw Peter approach Jesus, and he said, all right, Lord, I'm supposed to forgive, but how many times? Seven? Because back in Peter's day, the Pharisees taught you, you know, three strikes and you're out. You uh, you forgive him once, forgive him twice, third time, forget that joker. You're done with him, okay? So Peter, he upped the ante a bit, and he says, how about seven? Ah, Do I look good? And Jesus is like, no, Peter, (laughs) you don't get it. It's seven times 70, which the point is simple. It's forever, It's infinite. You perpetually forgive the other person. And you know, this is the thing I came to realize. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus' second teaching here on divorce comes right after that teaching on forgiveness. I think the two go hand in hand. And yet how many marriages end in divorce because one of the spouses refused to forgive? This is a very serious matter. Scripture warns time and time again against this attitude of unforgiveness, which is a hellish attitude that denies the gospel of grace that we claim to have received. That's why we forgive, right? If we claim to have received the forgiveness from God and our brother or sister comes to us and repents and we say, you know what? I'm sick of you. The first six times, I was okay forgiving you, but the seventh, you're done. You're out of here. What does that show about our own hearts? What does it show about our own understanding of grace that we claim to have received from our Heavenly Father, which we desperately need? It shows either there's a major hypocrisy and inconsistency or even that we don't have that grace whatsoever. And so when it comes to marriage and divorce, there's so much more at stake here than just a broken heart. For what ultimately is at stake here is the gospel itself, the gospel of grace, which is what actually fuels a good marriage to run properly, which leads us to our final point. To have a good marriage, we must know where it comes from, secondly, what it's for, and third, how it flourishes. After Jesus finishes explaining his high view of marriage and how they can't just divorce for any old reason and move on when they feel like it, do you see the disciples' response in verse 10? Look what they say. They say, if this is the case, then it's better not to marry. Like, what in the, this is, who wants to sign up for that? And they say this because they recognize what you and I recognize, which is, yikes, so you're saying, Jesus, that I could get trapped in an awfully difficult marriage. And the answer to that is absolutely you can. You absolutely can. You can end up in a marriage that is extremely difficult. And there is no way out except for becoming an adulterer. And biblically, that's something you definitely do not want to do. 
So yes, definitely be careful of who you marry, but that's not what Jesus leaves us with in this passage, is it? It's not. Look at verse 11. He says to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. What does that mean? Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. What must they have then to receive this teaching? What's he talking about? What must they have to love in this kind of self-sacrificing way? The gospel. The gospel of grace. And so whether, as Jesus goes on to explain, you are a eunuch not by your choice, a eunuch by your choice, which we could equate to the gift of singleness, or married, you can only love other unlovely people with, self, with self-sacrificing covenantal love through the power of marriage. That's the only fuel that will enable you to do that. Because until you have received the gospel, you're not going to be able to accept this hard teaching of Jesus. You're going to be like the disciples. You're going to be like, it's better not to marry. Like, that, that sounds awful. But no, when you've received the gospel, the power of grace comes alive in your life, which enables you to love unlovely people. When it comes to understanding the gospel and applying this to our lives, we need to understand what God did for us so that we can extend that onto others. What am I talking about? I'm talking about how God himself loved us so much that he set aside his glory to be born as a little helpless baby in order to suffer and die for our sake to save us. I'm talking about how Christ, the perfect husband, loves his very, very, very imperfect bride, which is us, the church, with all of our sinful spots and blemishes, and he is infinitely patient towards us as we sin against him daily, which we just sang about a moment ago. Our God is slow to anger when we go astray. Praise the Lord. I'm talking about Christ's love for us, which saw our adulterous state against him, and instead of handing us over to the penalty of death and issuing us their certificate of divorce, what did he do? He stepped in and took our place as the wrath of God was hurled down upon him upon the cross. And so when you see that kind of sacrificial covenantal love, that's the fuel you need which will change your heart and enable you to love the unlovely, even if you're married to him. The truth is we are all unlovely. We are all unlovable, who only become lovable through the power of grace. Which means that it doesn't matter, hear me when I say this, it does not matter if you're on your second, third, or fourth marriage. You can be completely forgiven through the power of God's grace, which is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can be completely forgiven and spared from the very soon-to-come stoning of God's wrath, which will come down upon all sinners. It doesn't matter the kind of sin that you've done. It will come down on them equally. And so the truth is, whether you are an adulterer who has divorced wrongly in the past, or you're an adulterer at heart, which, guess what? Put your hands up, everyone in this room. We all are that. We can all find hope and healing in the gospel of grace. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It does not make you a second-class citizen within the body of Christ. For within the body of Christ, it's not our resume that we bring that determines our value and worth within God's family. It's Christ's worth, which he imputes to us as righteousness, and it doesn't matter the kind of sin that you're bringing to the table. And another thing, this also means then that even a marriage that began in sin can become a wonderful picture of Christ's love for his church in which others can look to and say, wow, that's remarkable. Praise God for his grace on display. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been the victim of a divorce that was not your desire. You've been sinned against. Perhaps your spouse was unfaithful to you, even though you strive to be faithful to them. Then take hope. Take hope in the fact that we serve a God who understands your pain and your sorrow as he too has felt the pain and the sorrow of divorce. In Jeremiah 3.8, it reads, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. God's relationship with Israel is pictured as a marriage. And if you've read the Old Testament or know even a little bit about it, how faithful was Israel to God? 
not, not very faithful. And so God knows our pain. He knows that experience and how hard it is. And the truth is, though, the reality is every single one of us here are unfaithful. Maybe not when it comes to adultery and it comes to marriage itself, but we are all unfaithful to God. As we're about to sing in a moment, for every vow we've broken and betrayed. And yet, for us vow breakers, us betrayers, we take hope knowing that Christ alone is the faithful one who loves us not contractually, but covenantally. And because he does, we can be completely forgiven for our unfaithfulness. Christ is the solid rock upon which we stand for his hope oath, his covenant, his blood is our hope and stay. And so he alone enables us to avoid being stoned by the wrath of God and being cosmically amputated from him on the day of judgment. That's it. That's the only way. And so once we know him, once we receive him, it is only then that we can go forth loving others with the same covenantal love that he loves us with. If you're here this morning and your marriage needs help, don't think of this as some big, huge deal when you reach out for help. See, what a lot of people will do is they'll say, I can't ask for help because then it's going to look like, you know, it's going to look really bad. It's going to ruin my reputation. It's going to, you know, I can't let anybody know. We just got to, you know, just keep working. It's not as bad as it is. You know, just chin up. Don't take that approach. Don't take that approach. Don't hesitate to reach out for help. I'd venture to say every single one of us who's been married has had a point in our life where we should have asked for help but didn't. I know I've been there. And so I've asked a few people today to wait in the back by the welcome table. And so when I pray here in a moment, I'm going to give anyone here who has the opportunity who wants to go back for prayer just to say, hey, you know what, I'm struggling, I need some prayer. Maybe uh, get you connected with somebody who might be able to you know, give you some answers, give you something to look into to help with whatever it is you're going through. And it doesn't even have to be with marriage. Maybe you're here today and you've never understood the covenantal relationship that we can have with God that is found by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We'd love to show you. We would love to introduce you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray here, and while I do, feel free to head back, ask for prayer. We'll have people waiting there for you where you can meet with someone who is anxious and ready to pray with you and help you in any way that you can. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just ask that you would bless your people. Bless our marriages, Lord. Father, our marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And if our marriages within the family of God are in dismay, if they're all tangled up in a mess, Father, that diminishes our gospel light. Not just to the world around us, but even to our kids who may see the lack of gospel power in our marriage and potentially turn away from the gospel because of it. So, Father, we ask that we would, by your grace and your mercy and your strength, that we would walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh, that we would practice this covenantal, sacrificing love where we put ourselves last. For he who is first will be last. So help us to live as Christ lived, who, though he deserved first and all, he put himself last for the sake of us. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us as we sing. In a moment, we will feast in the house of Zion.